my participants were saying things like they wanted to see how many under par they could get, or they wanted to see how big a lead they could build. And um, I can remember self, myself in the library at University of Lincoln staring at printed out transcripts and just being like, how does this match up with what is in the goal setting literature? And, you know, I went back to textbooks, I went and read up on what we were being taught and, and what was happening in goal setting literature. And I'm like, what they're saying here is fundamentally different to how things are currently done. And so for me and, you know, sort of my personal journey with it all, it was that fascination that um, world-class athletes were doing things that weren't captured by goal-setting literature and were clearly using strategies that were beneficial to them by being very open-ended. Hello there and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance, whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. So this week's guest is Christian Swan. Now, Christian is an associate professor at Southern Cross University in Australia and specialises in research around goal setting and mental health. And in Christian's early research, he noticed an interesting observation. So whilst he was working with elite golfers, he asked them what sort of goals they set for themselves. And to his surprise, the types of goals that they set didn't conform with the the typical off-the-shelf literature, such as outcome-specific goals. And this led him to delve a lot deeper into this area and astutely began to question many of the premises upon which goal-setting methods are based, finding in many instances that frameworks such as SMART goals do not comply with the basics of goal-setting theory. Well, who knew? Well, probably a lot of us, actually, who've ever tried to use them and not been that successful. And so this is what we get into in this discussion, exploring the strengths and weaknesses of different ways of setting goals, weighing up process goals, outcome goals, and performance goals. We discuss the use of open goals and do your best goals, and potentially how we can apply these to whether we're a learner or an expert. So if you're setting goals for yourself right now, or if you're setting them for others, I think that this discussion is well worth your attention. Well, a very warm welcome to the podcast, Christian. It's been a long time. Um, How are you? Good. Thank you, Steve. Um, And thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to um, touch base and talk about the research we're up to. Fantastic. And so just kick us off, um, just give a bit of a background to you, your route, 
uh, your training and uh, and your sort of specialism? Yeah, sure. So I did my PhD at University of Lincoln over in the UK, um, which was focused on professional golfers. And as a relatively competitive golfer at the time, I was fascinated about how they get in the zone or into flow states. Um, and from University of Lincoln, I, I was I stayed there for a couple of years as a lecturer and then moved in 2015 over to University of Wollongong in um in Australia, just south of Sydney, and spent two and a half years there working in a research role um on a program that's called Ahead of the Game, which um Movember uh, funded and are now rolling out, and it's just been delivered as part of the Rugby League World Cup over in the UK, actually. Um and I was working very close to Stuart Vella and his team at University of Wollongong. And then in early 2018, um, I moved up to Southern Cross University, which is where I'm currently based. And so uh, at the moment, I'm sitting here in Coffs Harbour, which is on the east coast of uh, Australia, right in between Sydney and Brisbane, and um, essentially a little coastal town, which fortunately has a university campus on it and um, is pretty laid back. So um yeah that's my journey geographically at least <laughs> fantastic and uh we were just we were just chatting that we've coincided or at least i've, I've visited coffs harbour which i can vouch for how laid back it it was <laughs> uh having surfed there um i'm gonna sound like a right right bum but traveling up the up the coast um with my brother 24 years ago I think it was now so so that would have been my experience and a, what a wonderful place to 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 live and and uh do your work um so so I really want to get into your specialist topic around goals and how that's starting to emerge in your research and I think what what um What's been fascinating has been watching your research emerge and um, correct me if I'm wrong or um, give me your interpretation, but it feels like there's, um, we, we're working in, in the goal setting area. It seems to have been so established for so long and we've sort of drifted away from genuine critique and scrutiny about how we set goals, why we set goals, who we set goals for at different stages of their development. And it feels like your work is, is almost just a, a clarifying moment. It's resetting. It's straightening the course a little bit to say it's not quite as straightforward as, oh, here's a goal-setting uh, acronym you could use. Off you go. Done. That's goal-setting ticked. It feels as though is a deeper level of understanding, but there's also a questioning going on about, well, are we are we really using things that make sense or are foundational evidence based? Um, have I got that? Would that be a fair summary of how you're uh, approaching this? I couldn't have put it better myself, Steve. Did a great job. Done. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I think that we should end the podcast there, should we? <laughs> um, yeah, so I totally agree. Um, and, you know, that's a very common um, story that people tell when they, you know, they come and have a chat about goal setting or, um, yeah, they share their perspectives on how things work. And that ranges from people in sport to people in um, rehab to physical activity promotion, sort of 
generally speaking in our space, um, the conversations that seem to be happening are that people were very used to a status quo. They, they were sort of very conscious of a status quo, um, not totally satisfied with the status quo, but also in a space where no one was questioning. So why would they? Um, and that that's sort of the feeling that I get speaking with people in this space. And, um, and you know, to sort of illustrate just how embedded the exist the, the previous or the you know the traditional approaches have been um in australia there's a policy called the clinical framework for the delivery of health services um which is really important especially for exercise physiologists who are delivering um injury re rehabilitation for example and that policy dictates that practitioners must set smart goals and um so as a practitioner mm. why how could you question that if you know the, the framework you're operating under the the framework that decides essentially whether you get paid or not or um you know whether you're audited or or anything like that if that's dictating to you then what what position are you in to really challenge it so um i certainly yeah agree that there there has it, it has felt like there's been a status quo and that status quo has become quite embedded in things like these policies and traditional ways of thinking and um certainly some of the most exciting things that that we do um as a team are are really starting to think critically about all of this and ask ourselves the question you know what what's going to work best for mm. for different individuals and you know sort of in a nutshell how we see it is that we're sort of moving away from a one size fits all which is you know a things like the smart acronym essentially boil down to a, a one size fits all that your goal should be specific. Um, and then it like everything, if if the one size fits all is no longer there, it becomes a what works best for who in which situations. And so it becomes a much more complex um, challenge, really, and a com more complex way of working, but really, really exciting and, and really interesting to try and sort of work through that and and sort of go back to the drawing board and think through what the options are and um look at which situations they they seem to be really promising in. So um I I, I don't think I've articulated as well as you did, um, but I think we're both on the same page that um yes, it seems like this is a very sort of um traditional strategy that for a long time has felt like there's a status quo and we're starting to now um think a little bit more critically. Well I I think the one of the things that made um maybe just sit up a notice besides the, the the work that you've done in going right back and exploring where did the so smart goals we'll get into in a moment um but going back and then saying well, what's that based on and and i think whenever i've done that for sometimes accreditations sometimes um publication and you sort of go okay i better go and double check not just the reference, not just the first reference, maybe the second one, maybe the third one, and then go deeper and go, oh, that's based on a really shaky little <laughs> magazine article or something like that, that you end up going, oh, it's, it's not necessarily founded in evidence. And I think the equivalence would be something like a warm-up preventing injury, um, application of rest 
ice, compression for injuries, those sorts of things that we go, well, everyone should do that. That's our policy. But actually, we don't don't know whether it makes sense. Um, So... So before we get into sort of smart goals and, and that depth of then sort of opening this up a little bit, what what, what should goals do? What, you know, if, if we were to sort of think, if we step back from this area and rather than thinking about frameworks or types, what should goals do? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. Um, and, you know, it's important to, to say that not all of the time are goals necessary. Um, you know, we, we sort of assume in some places that you can't really be motivated if you don't have a goal. Um, but motivation can exist without goals. And there are instances where goals can be great. And there's instances where goals can be inhibiting. And there's actually research um, stemming from cognitive load theory called the goal-free effect. Um which is literally on you know what happens when there aren't goals, but people are still engaging in a task. And essentially, things become sort of a bit more exploratory um, and require less cognitive load. Certainly in things like um, you know maths problems and, and problem solving and things like that. So first of all, um, goals aren't always necessary. Um, they are used very frequently and it can be very effective. In terms of what... We ideally want to get from goals. Um, ultimately, uh, certainly in you know in a performance sense, they're there as a strategy to help us achieve something in the future that we haven't achieved at this point in time. So, if you think about the very nature of a goal, it's thinking ahead into the future and picturing something about where you want to be or where you want to get to, um, which. You know, in order for it to be a, a goal that you value, it has to be something sort of positive, um, something that is inspiring to, to some extent um, that you're motivated by. So it, fundamentally, it's the act of thinking into the future and and trying to identify what you would like to what your future would like to look like. Um, and by doing that, <clears throat> some of the really helpful um, aspects of goals that they give you direction, they can help you prioritize. Um, they help you sort of organize your thinking and your strategies. Um, they can help you learn new strategies. Um, and some of the things that we're really, really interested in are is the ways in which different goals can impact on how you feel while you're pursuing them, which I think is um, perhaps not received as much attention um, historically, but is really, really interesting, particularly in the context of... Um, you know, let's say physical activity promotion, where we know that if if it doesn't feel that good, you're less likely to do it long term. Um, so if your goal is making you feel a certain way, which actually isn't feeling that good or isn't that helpful, then that, you know, the, the goal could be an important influence in whether or not you're able to stay active long term. And vice versa, if you're able to replace that and introduce a goal that makes your experience of physical activity more enjoyable then long term your chances are better so we're sort of interested in that that notion as well of um the ways in which different types of goal make us feel which are quite different um and and when you again sort of like you said go back to the literature um 
we've sort of known this for quite a long time, but we just haven't really paid attention to it. So, you know, really well-renowned researchers like Desi and Ryan from self-determination theory fame. In 2000, they were talking about um, goals. Different types of goal have different behavioral and effective outcomes, i.e. different goals will do different things, both in terms of performance and other behaviors, as well as how you feel. And we just haven't really wrestled with that as a field for quite a while. And instead, we've sort of been a little bit blinkered with things like the SMART acronym, which we'll get onto. Um, but yeah, I guess to sort of summarize, goals are about thinking into the future, thinking about something that you would like to achieve and therefore has some value to you, which can provide things like direction and um, organizing strategies and um, prioritization, etc. But really importantly, can also influence how you feel along that journey. Um, and, and that itself can can be a really important um, long-term um, sort of implication of, of what different types of goals do. So perhaps I'm getting, jumping ahead here, but the um, you talked there a bit about positive feelings. You had a, a sense of um, if, if the, if you don't like the, the experience that it can turn you off. And so a goal perhaps inaccurately set or oriented could, could wither over time. Um, is that, is that delving into the approach and avoidance area where um, you, if you're setting positive goals, you're more likely to be thinking about approaching something. Whereas if you're, avoiding i i don't want this i'm fearful of that i don't want to mess up this um that that goal can um can have a negative effect certainly similar certainly similar um i think the, the key difference is that even when goals are set in a sort of approach manner um different types of goal within that will still have very different outcomes so at the heart of that that certainly we are, are playing around with is the specificity of the goal. Um, and there's, it, it's really interesting, the sort of dynamics at play between a specific goal and a non-specific goal. And when I say a non-specific goal, traditionally in the literature, um, you'll hear things like do your best goals or um, do as well as possible. The phrasing we um, are interested in uh, is more along the lines of see how well you can do. And we call them open goals. Um, and again, I can come back to that in a little bit as well. But fundamentally, there's a difference in how specific goals work versus non-specific goals. Um, specific goals are about identifying in the future something really tangible, quantifiable, measurable, time-bound probably. Um, and it's all, the, the act is all about trying to be as precise as you possibly can, essentially to increase accountability. Um, and what happens in, the, in terms of the dynamics there is you're identifying an endpoint that you want to reach. And the whole process is about reducing the discrepancy between where you are now and where you want to get to, which essentially means that you're, by definition, always going to be behind your ideal state. And that itself it affects us in terms of how we feel, particularly. Um, in a physical activity sense, particularly if you're 
um, insufficiently active or haven't, you know, have struggled to become fully active um, or, you know, even if you're learning the task, um, it's a little bit like, um, you know, if someone's in a pool, can't swim um, and you're telling them to get to the end of the pool, um, you know, the process there isn't going to be very pleasant, even if they're sort of scrambling and they're trying to get forward and they might be reducing the discrepancy. If they're not fundamentally able to do the task properly in the first place, it's actually going to be quite a stress-inducing thing. There's, you know, pressure associated with it, um, and it's probably not very enjoyable. Um, so, for particularly for those people who find the, the, the task complex or are still learning it, um, setting a specific goal essentially means you're you're always behind where you want to get to, and it's a process of reducing the discrepancy, which can lead to some of those feelings like i mentioned really interestingly if you set a non-specific goal by very nature you're not identifying your specific endpoint in the future that you don't know what that looks like so if you're saying see how many um, steps you can reach today you're by definition not saying the number you want to get to and because of that how the goal works is uh, you're judging your progress relative to your starting point because that's the only real sort of tangible um, reference point that you have. So everything is judged sort of backwards, which means that it's, it's fundamentally about building on accomplishments. And so, for example, if your goal was to see how many steps you could reach and you started at 1,000 steps a day and you managed to get to 2,000 steps a day, psychologically and in terms of progress, that's an increase of 100%, which feels amazing. But you're still 8,000 steps behind a 10,000 steps goal if if you had quantified that instead. So how you measure your progress relative to the end point or the starting point obviously dramatically changes how we feel. And so what we're really interested in at the moment is um, how we can manipulate goal specificity to essentially make the task feel better. So for certain types of people, let's absolutely set them specific goals because they already have the skills and the knowledge and they know what they're doing and that's why you see people who will religiously set 10,000 steps and you know won't stop walking until they achieve it that day. And it, it clearly works for some people. But for other people, let's manipulate the goal specificity. Let's set non-specific goals, particularly open goals, so that their progress is judged relative to the starting point. They always feel like they're building in terms of accomplishments. That gives them confidence. Um, it's more enjoyable. Um, and ultimately, it's more intrinsically motivating. And gradually, what happens is that they'll reach a point where they feel ready to then go and set their own specific goals because they're not sort of being challenged enough by the non-specific goal. So, again, coming back to your question around the approach avoidance, it's a really similar idea, but I, the difference being that within approach type of goals, there's different um, forms of goal within that. And manipulating them, particularly in around goal specificity, seems to be really leading to some really interesting um, and quite thought-provoking outcomes. Yeah, okay. So that if I try and um, interpret that and uh, give it my own little spin, you can check me on this. <laughs> that, that sort of idea of better today than yesterday, um, that incremental feel of... Well, I'm not knocking it out of the park, but if I compare myself to my prior state 
actually I've taken a step forward. Um, a little bit like looking back down the mountain and seeing how far you've climbed. Um, cool. That that sense, but but also I suppose you could, you could use that in several different ways. About rather than I've produced more power on the bike today than last time, or I've done more distance. You could even be looking at well, I've been more consistent recently than than previously. So that, that mm-hmm. looking at that prior state as opposed to the top of the mountain view of I'm not there yet, I'm not there yet. And one of the interesting things that I, I saw in your research or your research group's work was was this perhaps um, not, not a clear association with goals and confidence. Uh, and that idea about being behind the curve, you know, you're going to feel like you're you're behind the task, that can become quite overwhelming for people at different stages, can't it? I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Well, actually, I, I'm not making the progress I wanted to because I've set these goals and it's become um, unrealistic or it hasn't um, manifested itself for whatever reason. And mm. it doesn't necessarily map to confidence or self-efficacy. Mm. Yeah, totally. And and I guess, you know, my head goes to like an elite sport example where, you know, for a lot of athletes within a four year cycle, it'll be about in four years, I want to get that gold medal. And that's a really powerful thing and important thing. And it, it drives effort. It drives motivation um, for those people who are the best in the world at that that activity. You know, of course, they already know how to do it and they have all of the resources available. So it's it's absolutely theoretically sound to set a a specific goal um but still it it doesn't mean they don't feel pressure it doesn't feel it doesn't mean that they um yeah can take knocks in confidence and also you know the the succeed or fail element of that outcome can have um knock-on effects afterwards as well even if they achieve it there can be knock-on effects afterwards um so it is really interesting thinking about it from a, an elite perspective. Um, but in terms of that, that idea of confidence, again, it's really interesting. So we've run a couple of studies now where we essentially test people who pursue a non-specific goal and people who pursue a, a specific goal. And in a couple of studies, we've seen that even though there's no objective difference in the performance between both groups, there are significantly different. Uh, sorry, there are significant differences in the levels of confidence and the perceptions of performance between both groups. And so, what we see is um, people in the non-specific goal groups who pursue open goals will report significantly greater confidence and um, significantly higher perceptions of how well they did at the task, even though objectively there's no difference. So it it leaves people feeling like they've just done an awesome job of what they were doing, which is a a really good thing um to have in, in certainly in some situations um but yeah we we see some quite um big i guess differences um particularly in and around confidence um and enjoyment is another one so we we see quite big differences in enjoyment between um non-specific goals and specific goals particularly for those who are still learning the task or insufficiently active um they really seem to enjoy open goals much more and Conversely, those who are active seem to enjoy specific goals much more. So we're sort of coming back at this stage to that question of what's going to work best for which individuals in, in which situations and um, and thinking through 
that that one idea of how can we manipulate the goal specificity to better suit different people in, in different situations with um yeah quite quite um big differences as a result and so one of the words that uh, i saw in in your research was vague vague goals um so it's quite open it's uh, experiential in that sense um where it's lacking perhaps some of that specificity or the the numbers that you might apply to a goal and um I'm curious to to get your thoughts on on the use of that term because it it, it almost feels a little bit of a slight on the goal. Oh, it's a bit vague. Um, it's a bit nondescript. It doesn't sound as hardcore, but it it sort of almost feels like it's removing some of the external focus. Um, I want to hit that, and flipping it to the internal focus about our experience. I'm keen to get your interpretation of that that word in itself. Yeah, that's a really astute question. Um, and I, I love where your head's at on that and totally agree. So for us, we have tried to point out wherever we can that you know the term vague has negative connotations. And the evidence is showing that us that there are really positive effects of non-specific goals, um, or or what some researchers refer to as vague goals. So I, I think that's also reflective of where the goal setting paradigm has been, and obviously the dominance of the notion that goals should be specific, by definition, therefore um, discourages the use of non-specific goals. And so for a long time, non-specific goals have been inferior, and you know textbooks will literally say that they're they should be discouraged because they're not as effective as specific goals. So I think that that use of that term vague is definitely reflective of the paradigm. Um and we are very conscious to refer to specific goal uh, specific goals and non-specific goals rather than um specific goals and vague goals. Um and again the more evidence that we see around there being benefits of non-specific goals I think sort of strengthens that argument. And um, that sort of brings us onto this idea that you've referred to around SMART goals. And just in your um, description previously about that specific aspect, you, t- you mentioned specificity, you mentioned the, the measurable aspect, and you mentioned the, the time bound. Um, and coincidentally, I've got it in my notes here, just about, I've always sort of gone on with SMT part of the SMART. Um, and that aspect, when I really want to focus this down or I've been required to set clear objectives, that, that that's something that I, I can apply to certain scenarios when, when you can be specific and so on. But the A and the R bit have always really frustrated me. So <laughs> achievable and realistic. And I get to that point and I think, well, yeah, I could set something I know I can achieve, but what's the point? What's the point in setting a goal if I think I'll definitely better do that? I, I mean, I suppose it's got some use, you know, if you wanted to go and do a hundred mile cycle and you do that regularly, but you do, you enter, you set a goal of entering a, uh, an event that you can know you can do. That's, that's nice, mm. but it doesn't think about the stretch it doesn't recognize the the challenge and 
I always come back to that quote from Joe Vitalia, a goal should scare you a little and excite you a lot. And that sense of activation that seems to be missing in smart of, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> it seems a pointless process going through a smart goal. Go on. You, I'll leave it to you to, 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 to finish the takedown. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Um, and so there's a couple of things there. One is obviously a lot of people struggle with you, the, the sort of need to use both achievable and realistic, and they, they sort of struggle to differentiate the two. So there's an element of redundancy okay. there. I think um, sort of the broader issue with that, which I, I think is probably at the heart of, of what you're um, pointing out, is that that essentially means that SMART goals aren't in line with goal-setting theory. And goal-setting theory very much talks about the need to set specific and challenging goals in order to elicit best performance fundamentally um and so even though it, it doesn't seem like a huge sort of departure um from literature it actually fundamentally means that smart as a, a tool or as a strategy isn't in line with goal setting theory and that's quite important because theories are there to essentially give us a greater chance of being effective in what we try and do um, certainly when we're designing interventions or, or using strategies like this to, do, to enhance performance. Theories explain why things should happen, the, the circumstances under which they should happen, and also why things won't happen. Um, so theories are really there to sort of explain, you know, why you're more likely to be effective using a, a theory-based approach rather than a non-theory-based approach. And again, a, a really common assumption is that the SMART acronym is based on goal-setting theory. Um, I read that all the time in students' work as well as in media stuff and, you know, popular psych articles and all the rest. But fundamentally, for that very reason that you picked out, um, the SMART acronym isn't in line with goal-setting theory and wasn't designed to be in line with goal-setting theory. So, you know, where people are using SMART or being forced to use SMART, um, it is quite important, I think, to be conscious that it's not really um, a theory-based approach and therefore it's sort of not in line with the most rigorous or uh, most likely ways for us to be effective in what we do. Um, and it puts me into maybe a slightly skeptical, cynical mood about why has it got traction? And maybe it's because the how effective the acronym is, because I'm being smart. Um, I'm setting super smart goals and training smart approach gets people into that shrewd mindset. Well, I'll adopt that. You know, they would, they didn't use, I don't know, trams as a, as a, <laughs> as a version of it. Um, so Maybe they did in the railway industry. I don't know. Yeah, they should do actually. That's, that's, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, in supermarket, they went for marks or something, but um, they, that, I'm just curious as to why it's stuck because it, probably because it's sticky and that's, it's memorable. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's all sorts of books, particularly in marketing around how you make ideas stick. And um, I think if you looked at the smart acronym from that perspective, it, a number of the core ingredients would be there. Um, and it's, it's highly usable, which is, you know, really important. It's, it's uh, simple. It's practical, it's usable, 
Um, so therefore, that enhances its likelihood of people going and using it and applying it. The other sort of interesting point in that is around how it sort of um, transcends different fields. And I think particularly, you know, in sport and exercise, I think what's happened over time is that as our field has sort of grown and, and evolved and developed more and more, and, you know, even high performance thinking has sort of evolved and got better and better. I think traditionally we have had a probably a bias to look at what is happening in industrial psychology and in organizational psychology and assume that they must have it figured out. So if it's working for them, we'll do the same um, and we'll just implement what they're doing into our practice. And, you know, we can be rest assured that it's going to work well for us too. And there's a lot of assumption in, in there. Um, but I think part of that is, you know, the credibility that those fields have, you know, what, what big organizations do surely should apply to sporting organizations and, and high performance sport as well. You know, that, that's a, a reasonable assumption to make. Um, and so I think because of that, it, it's spread quite considerably and, um, and the alternative, I guess, for us in sport would take a lot longer when you think about it. You know, if we take something that has already been developed and has some evidence behind it and is, you know, there's people are using it in the real world and using it to good effect. Great. We'll use that and we'll speed up our process by five, 10 years. So we don't have to start from scratch. We don't have to build evidence base. We don't need to, you know, think up a new strategy that could work really well. It, it makes sense again to take from somewhere else and apply to us and assume that it's going to work reasonably well. And I think where we're sort of got to over a number of decades is that things have worked reasonably well for quite a long time. And I think now we're at a point, certainly as um, systematic reviews are coming out and meta-analyses are coming out, I think they're telling us that there's actually, we can get more out of this strategy. You know, that the evidence isn't saying that what we've done has been terrible and we should abandon it. The evidence is saying that goal setting is a useful strategy for performance, um, but there's probably more that we can get out of it by improving how we go about it. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, the popularity of SMART, I think, lies at its simplicity, its um, usability, but also I think it got a lot of credibility by being developed in um, organizational settings and being applied in really big companies. And um, and I think that, yeah, we looked to those fields and, and assumed that, you know, what they do should suit us as well. And so I'm just listing some of the critique from, uh, let's sort of look which, which article it is, um, the one that took down SMART. Overuse of smart goals. <laughs> over overuse. I love that. In it's like you've you've subtly put over in brackets, um, as in, <laughs> calm down, everybody. <laughs> so, twenty twenty one, lacking scientific underpinnings, not consistent with empirical evidence, does not consider what type of goal is set, not consistently applied, lacking detailed guidance. There's redundancy in the acronym not used as originally intended and ha potentially has ar harmful effects. Have you got anything good to say about SMART? <laughs> it's usable. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, so I suppose the the A and the R part of it, which I've got a, I, I probably always found a little bit um, less useful. I, I suppose that it, it, I could imagine a scenario where a company has used it, applied it, and got some momentum with it. Because if you're setting achievable and realistic goals, at least that there is some degree of progress. You know, we've hit this goal, we think this is achievable, we've moved forward. Um, and and potentially it's it's helpful in, in that sense. Is there um in terms of in terms of sort of retrospectively looking at those industries who might have applied this regularly, does it show degree of progress or is is the fund foundation of your case actually you'll probably like to get more progress or more uh, achievement if you're applying a different approach? I think the premise of our argument is that essentially it's a one-size-fits-all. Okay. Um, and, you know, we, we can pick apart that with some um, degree of detail. But fundamentally, I think we're saying that the way SMART encourages people to set goals means that they're a one-size-fits-all. And we mean one-size-fits-all, particularly in terms of, you know, you can only set specific goals. Um, we've just talked about non-specific goals and the benefits of non-specific goals. So it, it encourages everyone who uses SMART to, to pursue a specific goal. Um, and, a, and effectively, a, a, a non-theory-based specific goal. So it's not even a specific goal that's set in a best practice way. It's sort of a, a mediocre specific goal. Um, I think in other fields, going back to like organizational psychology and and use of goals in corporations and things like that, um, it was probably, um, I, I think people who would have struggled with SMART goals were probably in the minority. Fundamentally, goals were developed to help employers get more out of employees. And those employees fundamentally will have known how to do their job in the vast majority of cases. Um, and so in that setting, goals are, are probably pretty reliable. Um, and there's there's probably not too much um, risk of downsides in that, that kind of context. If you look at sport, exercise, physical activity, it's a very different scenario. Um, you know, yes, there's high performance sport, which are probably equivalent to um, high flying employees who know how to do the job. So great. That approach is probably reasonable. Um, there's also people who are still learning how to do the task or um, moving between sports or trying to get active for the first time in their lives or um, wrestling with a really new complex movement that they've struggled with or a new style of play or all of these different things, which essentially mean that there's probably a much bigger proportion of people for whom specific goals won't work or won't work as well. So I think our our sort of main gripe with SMART goals is, is that it encourages them to be set essentially in a uniform manner without really addressing the fact that there will be really tangible and important differences for um, different types of people, different groups of people in pursuing that goal. And again, the feeling that in our sphere, 
the proportion of people who will be disadvantaged by pursuing a specific goal is likely to be higher than uh, you know in an employment context um and you know sort of a, an extreme example of that that's certainly been um playing on our minds for a while is you know in, in exercise and physical activity we know that it, it, we know the benefits for health for physical health and for mental health we also know that it's being increasingly prescribed to people with uh, conditions like anxiety, depression, PTSD, as a way of helping them um, deal with those um, issues as well as feel better. But when you set specific goals, you're introducing a succeed or fail scenario. And we're actually in the middle of a, a review at the moment, and which is reviewing the um, rates with which individuals fail or achieve their goals in physical activity programs. And what we're seeing so far, don't quote me on this because we're not finished yet, but what we're seeing so far is sort of a minimum of around 30 to 35% of the time people will fail to achieve their goals. Even those people who are st who stick with the program and haven't dropped out because they're fed up with it. So if you've got a scenario where uh, around a third of the time you're not going to achieve your goals, what does that do to you psychologically? Um, particularly if you are engaging in exercise and physical activity to help you deal with quite significant um, problems. And then, you know, if you're introducing failure within that, is there a risk of actually exacerbating some of those symptoms that you've been feeling in the first place? And that's where I think we come back to in terms of illustrating that this one-size-fits-all approach can go quite considerably wrong. So we do need to really pick apart the different um, moderating factors, the different profiles that people will have, the different subgroups who will benefit from different types of goals, but who will also be at risk from certain types of goals. And, and I think that's another sort of point that we've tried to highlight in the last couple of papers, that goal setting isn't a risk-free strategy. There's actually some, some pretty good evidence um, around important risks and harmful effects of goal setting. And that's, that's within established goal setting literature. Um, Locke and Latham have talked about it within goal setting theory. Um, there's things including unethical behavior, um, stress, anxiety, pressure, um, failure. Um, these things are real and important and can be very detrimental. And things like the SMART acronym, which encourage the one size fits all, just mean that you're not paying sufficient attention to those people for whom it is not likely to work as well mm. and so my head goes to the the idea of setting unrealistic expectations on yourself because you've been sort of forced to do that not maybe be able to hit those and then feeling rubbish about about yourself probably something that most people will feel mid-january is that as they set, <laughs> set a new year's resolution and they've sat with a, a brandy and thought, I'll, I'll try and lose 10 pounds. I'll um, do some volunteering. I'll learn a language. And they, they take on too much. And then they don't hit those goals. And then they feel rubbish about themselves. And perhaps mm -hmm. that, that feeling of, oh, no, I haven't done that, might be appropriate for some people because it might regalvanize them. But if that's assuming that, People have got the wherewithal to be able to cope with that and reframe and then move forward. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, 
in turn, from a goal setting theory perspective, replacing the term you use, the wherewithal, in goal setting theory, they refer to knowledge, commitment, resources, um, ability. Um, so some quite distinct and well-established psychological constructs, which explain when a specific challenging goal is going to be beneficial for someone. And right. they're really, really clear in their theory that if those moderating factors aren't present, then a specific challenging goal isn't going to be beneficial. So they're really clear and really upfront, but it's just often overlooked. Um, so you're right. You know, it's actually a really nice time to talk about this because we know loads of people will be thinking about it in January or, or yeah. December 31st. Um, but, you know, the way I, I would maybe encourage some people um, to think about New Year's resolutions and things like that is, you know, rather than aiming to read 20 books next year or aiming to, you know, go to the gym three times a week, every week for the next 52 weeks, whatever it is. Um, try seeing how many books you can read and try seeing how many times you can get to the gym and record it. And you'll feel a sense of progress as you do it, even if it's two or three books, even if it's once a week or once a fortnight, they actually get to the gym. The process of um, having flexibility and recording the achievements that you have got Again, remembering that non-specific goals are judged against your starting point rather than the end point. So you'll still feel good about it. And what will likely happen is that either part of the, part of the way in or by this time next year, you'll be like, right, well, last year I managed six books. Next year, I'm going to go for 10. And the important thing is you've already built the knowledge, the commitment, the resources, the ability, all of the important factors to then be ready for a specific goal next time around. So it's it's a little bit like you know baseline testing in high performance sport, right? You know you're you're gonna just capture where someone's at this point in time, and then you can start working with them from there. And so these um, open open ended goals are essentially a way of sort of capturing your baseline, but it's really rewarding as you do it, and then it will get you to a point where you're ready for specific goals. And that's another thing that we've been really we've we've really tried to be conscious of articulating in the literature as well is that you know it's the solution here isn't just about replacing a one-size-fits-all approach with another one-size-fits-all approach because that's just clearly not going to work so as as much as we are fascinated by open goals we're really mindful that they will work for a, a particular population and other approaches are needed for different populations and mm. um and in our view a well-set specific challenging goal in line with goal setting theory will work fantastically well for lots of people, particularly in high performance domains. Um, so it, I think where the research is likely to progress over the next few years, as we move further and further away from a one size fits all approach, I think it's more likely to become about transitions. And I think it'll be right. about, you know, if you've got your journey mapped out in front of you, and you're starting at the very start, here's an approach that will get you up and running in a really nice way, in a sort of a, a psychologically safe way, if you like. And gradually, you'll start building commitment, you'll build resources, you'll build knowledge, you'll build the ability, and you will feel yourself when you're ready for more. And at that point, we'll help you set a specific goal. And then you're sort of off and running and setting specific goals. And I think we're, we're moving towards 
models like that where it's it's really explicit about articulating you know this will work at this stage of the journey essentially mm. and so just to just to recap a little bit there um that sense of open goals perhaps being a little bit more suited to a learner phase where there's exploration they're a bit freer it's it's more effort as, as sorry it's it's um it's more oriented to do your best and and those sorts of supportive statements my my head goes to um this year's experience of trying to commit to learning a language and this awesome. is <laughs> this is a hangover from um, being at school. The only the only like, the only subject I really enjoyed at school was was Spanish, and and I couldn't I couldn't study at A level for various reasons. Um, and so it was one of those moments of you know what I, I I don't want to expire having not tried. And um, and early on, as I was starting to sort of just approach and get into how do I go about this? What would competency look like? You know, does fluency, what, when does fluency come? How many hours you might need? Um, how many words would you need to understand? That then got me into a mindset of thinking about, you know, creating a list, a spreadsheet of words. So I kept a track of the ones I knew, the ones I was secure on. Um, the, the number of hours that I might need to invest in. And that got me into being quite specific. And then I think the rubber hit the road of me <laughs> just getting totally confused. I peel back the onion of I started to realize how complex and how, how different the, the language Spanish is to, to English and, but also how ignorant as an Englishman um, I am of foreign languages. And, and then it just got me into it. You know what? I can't continue like this. I still want to commit to this goal. I still am fascinated by this. But the way in which I'm doing it is not helpful because it's winding me up very quickly. And so I'm getting frustrated and feeling a bit rubbish about it, demotivating and stopping for a bit. And then... I've just gone to more of a, let's see how many times I can pick up Duolingo each week or how many times I might listen to a Spanish podcast. And it's more about trying to expose myself. And now I'm getting into, sorry if this is just boring you about my Spanish journey, but no, I'm, it's getting, it. it's, I'm now getting into a place where I'm I'm setting some little goals. So with my online Spanish tutor, I'll set a goal to use a certain word more frequently, for example. That's just a mini goal that I'll try and set and I'll practice some phrases ahead of time that I can I can use. And it's starting to just become, for me, a little bit more tangible now where I can see the use of that. And so I'm going to pursue that a bit more. Does that make sense? Yeah. Totally. And you're probably at a point where you're able to now identify um, challenges or, or targets or goals for yourself at the level of difficulty that you need for where you're at, right? So you're not flying blind and saying, I'm going to do this. You have now had enough experience to be able to know what a specific and appropriately challenging goal is for you. And it's all self-set and it's driven by you. 
and that's I think the perfect illustration of um, what we're certainly working on at the moment in physical activity promotion. How do you take people and get them to the stage where you're at now, having navigated some of the complexity, having got them through enough to experience some progress and start to feel good about it? And I, I guess most importantly, feel that appetite to be like, okay, now I've got the hang of it a little bit. How can I just gradually increase it a little bit and a little bit? Um, so I, I love that example. I think it's really, really cool. And I think as well, a, another sort of underlying point there is that, you know, as we're talking, I've referred to the dis- distinction between active people and insufficiently active people or um, people who are still learning. Yeah. Implicit in that could be the assumption that um, you, you know, highly skilled people don't need non-specific goals or don't need open goals. Uh, and that's a myth that we're keen to bust as well. And, you know, look at you, you're a high performance podcaster, uh, really <laughs> distinguished on, career. Steady in high on. <laughs> um, and, you know, you have just articulated how you needed that sort of flexibility and exploration and freedom that comes with a non specific goal. And so, in goal setting theory and, and Locke and Latham's, you know, really prominent work. They they're really explicit that um, you know you can change jobs and you're essentially starting from scratch and in in that instance specific challenging goals will no longer be best for you even if you've used them for the last twenty years yeah. and it could be you know people stepping into a CEO role for example by definition extremely skilled people have loads of knowledge ability work ethic all of the rest. But they step into a role that certainly the first time they might feel like overwhelmed by or not sure of what they're doing. And, you know, it might take some time to um, figure out how they want to run that company or how they want to execute in that role. And so even for the most skilled people, there will be situations where the context isn't right for a specific challenge and goal and instead they just like you will benefit from um that freedom that comes with a non-specific goal while they're still figuring things out and they'll figure it out pretty quickly and then they'll be off and running but high performance people aren't immune and 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 it's not the case that they don't need open goals and non-specific goals Um, so yeah it's just a sort of an important thing to point out in case there was an assumption coming through that um, is sort of based on ability rather than um, situational context. And, and I'm thinking about a conversation I had um, that's coming up on the podcast with Joe Baker around talent and talent development. And one of the points he was making was that that at those transition points, or or at least as coaches and support people and guiders of of people moving forward, mentors. He was talking about the importance of when people get to a certain level, it's beholden upon us to to be saying, and now this is required of you, behaviorally, commitment-wise, approach, uh, an attitude. This is now the next level, as opposed to thinking you've got to that level, and naturally, if you're going to form your conclusions yourself, you might think, oh, I've made it. Uh, I've got to that level without necessarily seeing what the the next step up would look like. If you want to go there, then then this is required for you. Mm-hmm. Explaining that um, so that people understand the, the the next steps on the ladder 
and whether they want to make that climb or not. Mm, totally, yeah. And um, as you were talking, it, it sort of just reminded me that, you know, where Open Goals came from fundamentally was with uh, professional golfers. Mm. Um, and so European tour players, Ryder Cup players, major winners. The thing that during my PhD that I, I was sort of just a little bit um, sort of dumbstruck by was that I was interviewing them after they'd won tournaments or after they'd shot, you know, really low rounds or um, career low scores, not like it's exceptional performances by exceptional people. And one of the things that really struck me um, and I wrestled with in a long time during the PhD was that they articulated goals that didn't align with what I had just been taught as an undergrad around how goals should be set. And again, you know, smart goals, specific goals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, instead, my participants were saying things like they wanted to see how many under par they could get, or they wanted to see how big a lead they could build. And um, I can remember self, myself in the library at University of Lincoln staring at printed out transcripts and just being like, how does this match up with what is in the goal setting literature? And, you know, I went back to textbooks, I went and read up on what we were being taught and, and what was happening in goal setting literature. And I'm like, what they're saying here is fundamentally different to how things are currently done. And so for me and, you know, sort of my personal journey with it all, it was that fascination that um, world-class athletes were doing things that weren't captured by goal setting literature and were clearly using strategies that were beneficial to them um, by being very open-ended. And, you know, that, that, very idea is what still motivates me now and sort of drives the research that we're doing in this area um because a lot of our focus like i've said is now on um, physical activity promotion um and we've sort of moved a little bit away from sport um but yeah fundamentally these ideas came from top class athletes which i think is kind of cool and did you ask them why they set those goals in that way? Were they guided to do that? Were they advised? Or was it um, a bit of natural selection where they've rejected um, overly intense and specific goals and they've just they've just, just been a bit kinder than to themselves? <laughs> it was interesting. So, uh, like I said, my PhD was focused on um, sort of in layman's terms how the, the pro golfers got in the zone. And so I was really interested in um, flow states. And um, one of the key things that, I, that my research found um, during my PhD was that, and this may come as no surprise to you, but um, at the time it was interesting that uh, when top class athletes have exceptional performances, it's not sort of a single uniform psychological state that they experience. It's not, the zone isn't um, the only thing that they can experience. And and my PhD mapped out two quite distinct states that they reported. Um, one being flow, which was nice and harmonious and felt like things were clicking into place and really enjoyable. Um, and the other was what we later called um, clutch states or the psychological state underlying clutch performance, which was much more um, effortful, much more intense, much more um, conscious and aware of what was happening in the situation. Um, and really sort of involved a, a stepping up of 
everything you have to try and get across the line, essentially. Um, so that's the sort of backdrop to the, the how the goals fit in. So within flow states, um, the golfers were able to articulate that they they set non-specific goals um, as a key part of how they got into flow in that they had no expectations, no pressure. Um, they built on their earlier accomplishments in the round and built up this confidence, which then before they know it, they were just sort of off and running and having this really nice experience and performing really well. Um, so it's sort of like the experience landed itself really well to that type of goal. And um, they they weren't... Um, that it, 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 it sounded like a very natural thing to set goals like that in those situations they faced. On the other end of the spectrum, um, the same golfers were also talking about you know, seeing a leaderboard and knowing they're two behind with three to play. So it's got to be birdie, 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 and then I'm going to win this major. So it's on. And that's a very, very different type of experience with a very different type of goal driving it. So in terms of, yeah, how the, the golfers um, articulated where the goals came from, it, it was largely driven by the environment and the situation and the psychological state they were experiencing. Um, and we've since um, run studies with other athletes across a range of sports and standards and very similar things that we see. But we are we do have a, a PhD student at the moment, Ollie Williamson, who's um, at University of Lincoln and, and at Southern Cross University. And he's in the middle of a study um, which is asking athletes around their use of non-specific goals. And, um, and so that research will be coming out in the near future. Um, but is you know the first that I'm aware of where we're actually asking athletes to, to try and articulate why they might set um, open-ended goals or non-specific goals and what the benefits mm -hmm. might be. And certainly one of the the really early findings that we're seeing in in Ollie's work is around avoidance of pressure. And, right. Um, okay. I, I was just going to ask about. It, it almost feels like it might be a coaching mechanism internally where rather than you worrying about the leaderboard, you're focusing on the now and it's almost mm. like an active reminder. No, no, don't, don't get distracted with that. Just focus on seeing how well you can do. Yeah, <laughs> um, totally. And that, that's got me thinking about probably two or two or three different competitive scenarios and how much it makes logical sense for me. One would be, like a racing situation where you don't necessarily get time to, to think things through. Um, and I'll see how I hope I, I do this well. Um, you're, and also in combat sports, combat, and I'd include um, racket based sports, for example, where you're vying against an opponent. And rather than thinking about, I'm in control of the course, I'm in control of my stroke play. Um, I'm competing and the scoreboard is dominant in my thought process about whether I'm winning or not. Yeah, absolutely. Really good examples. And I think the other example we've sort of toyed with a little bit as well is um, cricket. Okay. You know, where, where you're the nature of what you're doing in as the opener, as the opening team is very different to what you do as the chasing team. Yeah. And the chasing team obviously has a really clear target. And so that, it is a very different dynamic to 
being put in first and um you know teams will will probably set themselves some notional target based on how they assess the pitch and the conditions and the opposition and all the rest but fundamentally they're they're sort of just seeing how big a score they can get and then the other team is going to chase them so there are some really interesting sort of naturally occurring um situations in sport mm. where different types of goal have to be at play um which is yeah which is really interesting as well and so um that that naturally sort of leads me on to um some recent work that i've seen it might have been ollie williamson correct me if i'm wrong but about um process versus performance versus outcome and i mean we've sort of opened this area up a little bit and i'm keen to get your thoughts on the power or the relevance or the con- context in which performance process or outcome goals might be most most relevant but this sort of leads me to sort of thinking about that sort of alberto albert bandura um distal and proximal goals and for me probably that feels as though rather than a one versus the other the both both of them complement each other in different ways of I want to get to the top of the mountain. That's my distal goal. And my proximal goal is to navigate the bit that's in front of me. And, <laughs> and that has to work together. That's, that's where I'm going, but, mm. but this is what I've got to do to, to start that process. Um, so, so just, just unpack the, the process versus the outcome. Um, research findings that you've you've just um just published yeah so that that's um ollie's first study in his phd um and what a study to start your phd on yeah we we um it was a big one as well really tons and tons of effort went into that so he 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 did really well um and essentially you know that there are a couple of standout findings in that review, uh, which was a systematic review of uh, goal setting research in sport. And one was the difference in performance effects between process performance and outcome goals um, with really, really large effects for process goals in terms of their effect on performance, um, relatively strong effects for performance goals, and then essentially negligible effects of um, outcome goals. And um, another key finding was that there was um, no evidence that non uh, that specific goals were better than non-specific goals. So essentially sort of consistent findings um, in a sport domain to what we've seen in, in other domains like physical activity promotion. Um, and and I think it is really interesting in sport um, in the sense that, Certainly our group haven't um, played around with the notion of specificity and, and non-specificity experimentally within a sporting domain as yet. Um, so process performance and outcome goals could either be set in a specific or a non-specific manner. Um, right. And of clearly, based on the, the meta-analysis and systematic review, clearly they each have differing effects, um, but we haven't yet sort of seen if we can amplify those effects by adjusting them in a specific or a non-specific manner. I think, you know, the, the explanation for why we see such big differences between process and outcome goals comes down to things like um, where your focus is during a performance. You're obviously focusing on task-relevant 
um, cues and strategies um, such as your stroke while you're swimming or in golf, you know, executing your pre-shot routine. Um, so really sort of almost present focused cues, um, whereas performance goals are much less, uh, performance and particularly outcome goals are much less controllable, um, right. often bigger and um, scarier and, um, yeah, certainly out of your control, which which has obvious effects in terms of performance as well as in terms of um, your experience or pursuing them. Um, so, yeah, that evidence really strongly says that process goals um, should lead to better performance by themselves. But I think in terms of, you know, where we see the, re the research going in future, I think you're totally right that um, our focus at the moment is sort of on isolating the effects of particular types of goal, but clearly it has to move to a, a place of looking at optimal combinations eventually. Right. And, yeah. and how can we amplify things even more by, you know, pursuing camp one and camp two in order to get to the top of Everest um, and not just, you know, see how high up the mountain we can get. So I think we have to move in that direction. And and it's also important to note that we haven't yet tested um, process goals against open goals or other types of non-specific goal. And that's really high up on our radar as well. So. Um, I guess where we, we see things at the moment is that we're sort of sifting through all of the different options in, in goal setting that exist and that are currently used. And we're starting to see where the promising signs are and where some of the less promising signs are. So we're sort of like filtering out which ones um, might be useful and which ones might be less useful. Um, and then, you know, our, our whole sort of research program is moving towards being able to test them and identify if there's a particular type of goal that's best or whether it's you know best looks like combinations mm. or whatever um but yeah ollie's um study is awesome um took a lot of work and and certainly provides a you know a strong basis for mantras around focusing on the process um mm. and and things will take care of itself okay so the scoreboard taking care of itself in that sense but, so could you just clarify uh, Point of clarification on performance versus outcome is that outcome being like a placing or a win, um, whereas performance might be more like a time or um, the an actual description of how you performed. Yeah, so sort of similar to SMART, um, when you really drill down into the definitions, there's still a little bit of wooliness between okay. process, performance, and outcome. I think. How they're most commonly interpreted uh, are that outcome is where you want a place in the competition, so you want to win. Um, performance is what what score you need to achieve or what your performance needs to look like. So, you know, I need to shoot 10 under par, and then process is um, I'm going to execute every pre-shot routine the way I want to. Um, like I said, when you look closely, there's a little bit of williness in there, but that's that's typically how it's interpreted. Yeah. So I reckon, no, no, so that's very unscientific. Um, oh, no, go for it. No, I like I, it. Well, um, my <laughs> hypothesis is um, that my, my sense is, so I'll come back to this term that you used a couple of times, which I love, um, effort mobilization. And so to me, when I read that, I thought about appropriate effort mobilization and that sense of, of 
well, if I'm overly focused on the outcome and worrying about that, then I'm going to be focusing on the wrong things and, and probably experiencing emotions that don't necessarily help. But it's, it's good to glance at that every now and again. It's good to, it's good to, to look up at the top of the mountain. And that process goal is really grounding as to what, what do I need to, what's in front of me? What can I control? What steps do I need to take that allows me to, to get there? Um, and so that probably is the dominant focus for a lot of people. But if it's only like that, my experience of working with elite performers tells me that that's re- that can get doubly intense in a different way. I get I start to drill down and I start to overly worry about that and it forget the purpose. Right? Yeah, um, the number of times that I've had to help athletes drag themselves out of the detail and and think beyond the outcome almost the why why are you doing this because mm. they might say i want to win, win the race but why what's it going to give you and and it's actually more about purpose focus that helps them de-stress and and alleviate some of that intensity from overly focusing on process um, mm-hmm. that, that's my sense that when you're coaching an athlete, you do need them to be thinking about the goals in different ways, but being mindful as a coach or as a support person of seeing where their head's at. And if it draws too far in one direction, you've got to help rebalance that. It's a bit like the, uh, believe it, you can achieve it. Well, it's sort of nonsense unless you can do it. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So just just that sense of of reframing, reflecting with people um, as as a support staff. So that's my kind of thought on on the benefit of complementarity of the two approaches. Yeah, and I think that is you know completely logical and um, and resonates very strongly, certainly with how I feel about it, and I, and I think. Um, you know, in discussing process performance and outcome goals, uh, my sense is that um, the majority of the work has been on understanding, you know, what some of the outcomes might be. Obviously, in, there's lots of research in terms of their outcomes and performance. My sense is that there's not quite as much on understanding the circumstances in which each of them will be most appropriate. You know, that that fundamental thing that we started at the very beginning of this this conversation about is like what's going to work best for him. And I, I don't know the extent to which um, the research on process performance and outcome goals has sort of grappled with that issue. And again, um, that can happen almost at any time when you work with an elite, elite athlete, right? Just because they're an elite athlete doesn't mean that they have to be pursuing specific challenging goals all the time. Um, and yes, for them, the outcome goal is likely to be a real driver and and potentially at times unavoidable as well. You know, as yeah. if their funding is contingent on it, for example. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and we know that process goals will be very beneficial in terms of the you know approach to training, consistency, um, developing new skills or refining um, some of the skills that they already have. Um, so it, I think it like you 
perfectly articulated. I think there are there will still be different situations where different things are going to work well, and we sort of have to try and shift the mindset of, you know, here's your goal. We've agreed that. Now let's get on with it, because things change. And part of the the <laughs> some of the things that I'm sort of really um, fascinated by are that fundamentally when we talk about goal setting and i sort of mentioned this earlier we're talking about the future we're essentially trying to convince ourselves that we can control the future um, or at least that we we can project the parameters we have now into the future and assume they will still hold and covid has obviously taught us that that's nonsense and that things happen that force us to shift and adjust and so Goal setting simply can't be a one-off or a one-size-fits-all. It has to be a what works best for whom in what circumstance, bearing in mind that circumstances will change. And so exactly as you've articulated, it will force you to adjust and refine and um, take stock and reset and reevaluate. And it has to, mm-hmm. it has to be that way if you're going to do it as effectively as I think it can be done. If you're not doing those things, I think you're just at risk of it not going well. So I was going to sort of ask you a bit of a wrap-up question about what your sort of advice for coaches, but I think I might have heard it in that um, <laughs> that statement there about about understanding that the you need to stay mindful and open to the relevance, the effectiveness of of a goal setting approach. What I'm hearing there, and I love these sort of two polar approaches that I sort of toy with a lot of groups that I work with now, which is which is you know a dream without a plan, it's just a wish. That, that's speaking to what are you going to do about it? What You know, you want to get there, but you've got to put the graft in. And at the same time, the polar opposite idea that no plan survives contact with the enemy, you've got to stay agile and adaptable. And the two approaches can support you. Set a plan, but stay adaptable. Uh, see how mm. it's going. Um, totally. So and I think inherently through, through things like that and through, I think, where the research is leading us, the the model of delivery of goal setting as a strategy, I think, is going to shift from goal setting being something that we set as a one-off or that we, you know, the, the goals are things that we agree on. I think we're going to move more towards the um, building the skill of goal setting within athletes or within individuals so that they know themselves what's going to work best in which circumstance based on where, how they assess the circumstances. Um, so it sort of moves us from goals being sort of an external thing that we're all going to work towards to actually know we're going to um, become proficient at this strategy so that you are able to navigate your journey as well as any advice I can give you. And I think it has to be that way, given the complexity of um, of the, the different situations people are going to face. Um, you know, again, once the one size fits all is at the window, it has to go to um, knowing what the options are and knowing when is the best time to use each of those options and then going doing that. And and if you can build that skill in someone, they will then be much better equipped to navigate that journey and to, you know, move past the roadblocks and to go back to square one or to ramp things up or to refine. And, you know, all of the, you know, the, the work that you'll have done with clients, helping them navigate their journey, it, it, they're the, the fundamental skills that I think will start moving towards building in athletes um, rather than sort of the, you know, the stereotypical traditional model of here's your goal setting plan, go and go and pursue it. It feels right and it feels appropriate <laughs> in that sense of that you've talked about that learner and competent uh, practitioner, uh, skilled performer, and how it 
is different at different stages. You might need a bit more, you know, for example, in, in the world of, you know, elite training, it would be entirely appropriate for a seasoned performer, somebody who's, who's been there, done that, to be guiding a lot of the decisions. Now, I feel like this today, I think we should be doing this type of training. And mm-hmm. as a support person, you're going to be helping them reflect, coach them along, but not necessarily prescribing as much as you would do perhaps for a learner or a novice or a, someone at the start of their career where they perhaps just need some some simple structures to to get them up and running. And mm-hmm. it feels appropriate that a performer would still then revise how am I setting goals at different times? What's my focus today versus uh, what it, what will it be in the future? Um, and being adaptable to what they need in that moment. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, in the corporate world and in organizations, a lot of managers will have been faced with exactly that over the last few yeah. years during COVID, right? Where things just change dramatically, priority shift, um, all sorts happens. And whether they felt like it or not, it was essentially testing their ability to provide direction for their organizations through, um, you know, essentially goal-directed behavior. Um, and that's just a, a sort of a, a pretty recent and vivid example of what other people are inevitably going to experience on their journeys. And so, of course, yeah, we, you know, the, the future looks like equipping them to use the skills as they think is most appropriate and most beneficial. And yeah, moving away from that sort of prescriptive style, um, which is still a little bit prevalent, certainly in some settings. Fantastic. Well, look, I mean, it's, it's power to you. This has been an um, enlightening conversation of... Um... I love the approach that you're taking with this. I'm, I'm sort of, I don't think I could finish the conversation without asking if you've got a goal for your goal setting research. <laughs> so I'm just yeah, making well, myself it, laugh it, now. It, it, might, it, it might not come as a surprise that our, our goal is pretty open ended. Um, you know, the work that we are doing really wants to just address that question of what's going to work best for whom. And so that, that helps us decide the studies that we need to do next in order to try and understand different parts of that. Um, ultimately, you know, the, the grand vision that we have um, is, you know, we're, we're working, I guess, primarily in physical activity at the moment and, and doing some work in sport. Um, but, you know, the same principles apply in other domains. Um, and so, you know, as over time, we will gradually broaden our horizons and, and look at what it means to set savings goals or, you know, diet goals or um, educational goals and um, business goals and all of these things, that, you know, in the future, you know, us or someone else can take care of that. But for now, we're really driven just by trying to answer that question. But but I also think, um, and again, sort of coming back to our fascination with how goals impact on how you feel, we're approaching this in a very exploratory way. Um, we're, we're sort of just trying to find things out as we go along, where we have that broad idea that we need to understand um, what's going to work best for whom. But because it's exploratory, it's loads of fun. And um, a big part of what we do uh, is just you know, stay interested in what we're doing, be curious. Um, we find ourselves finding things that we think are cool and writing about them and talking about them. And um, that's probably as, as important to us as anything, I'd say. And also, you know, that's why I really appreciate opportunities like this because it's loads of fun to be able to sit here and talk to people like you and um, share the, the things that we've been thinking about. Well, I mean, I've had a steady realisation during this conversation, Christian, that I, I, should, have, I should have gone into this area. Um, I, sh- I should have researched <laughs> goals. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe because you know, well, well for the the duration of my career, I think that that I'm, I'm I haven't always responded well to those annual appraisals and setting objectives and all those sorts of things. I find them, I used to find them painful. Maybe that was one of the reasons of setting up my own business. I don't have to necessarily, but um, I wonder. My mischievous side has just now peaked as to whether you sit there and say, "Okay, Christian, what's your objectives for the year? What's your research goals, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And you you could just. 
Well, we're experimenting with different types of goals now. So all I'm going to put is just to survive, just to live, just to be here, um, to, to <laughs> be really well, super yeah, vague. It's, it's funny. So um, I, I actually had, I stepped into a management role uh, for a couple of years during COVID and was on the other side of those conversations yeah. and um, found them difficult a lot of yeah. the time as a manager, particularly looking back on the previous year's goals. And I couldn't help but feel that essentially they were um, most of the time plucked out of thin air put on a sheet of paper, discussed and said, yes, that sounds logical, not monitored in between when you come back and you do it the same next year and whether you hit them or not didn't really matter. Um, but you sort of went through that process anyway. So in terms of my own um, performance reviews, I don't know if my managers like this or not. But for me, again, I come back to an open-ended goal. If, if that's what the pro golfers told me in my PhD, then sure as hell, I'm going to try that myself. So, you know, as a researcher, there are targets for me around um, how many publications we produce each year, for example. For me, Every year, my approach is to see how many I can produce. And um, that drives me. That works for me. It avoids pressure. I find that if I was to have a specific tar uh, specific goal, it would probably adjust my strategies. It, I would probably become more outcomes focused rather than enjoying what we do. And um, by and through that, producing more creative work, I think. Um, so, yeah, for me, I, I, I find myself in many walks of life coming back to that phrase of see how well I can do in the situation. And... Um, not all the time, but most of the time it, it, it serves me fairly well. So, Yeah, I, would, I would love that. And, and I think it has got a real true spirit of you're still going to be progressing. You're still going to be working hard. You're still going to be making gains and influencing people. But definitely. Totally. And again, definitely, like your goal isn't you. Your goal yeah. is not your annual performance, right? You're, yeah. You will be able to perform separately to what your goal says you should be doing. And yeah, but what you've built up is the ultimate repellent for an annual appraisal you've got <laughs> we can't ask him about setting some objectives everyone else is doing kpis well we can't ask that guy because he knows stuff about that and it doesn't make sense oh well he knows it doesn't make sense but we're still going to stick to it i could just imagine a conversation going on somewhere in a boardroom of like oh we can't outfox him on that you've 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 got us you've got us in a spin it's my performance review is actually coming up in a couple of weeks so i'll be thinking of this conversation when i'm when i'm in that discussion <laughs> Uh, brilliant. Well, where, where can people follow along? Um, where, where would be the best place if people want to tune in to, to your material, Christian? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I try and share as much as I can on Twitter um, and sort of have, have discussions and, and comment on things I see on Twitter. Um, I guess the future of Twitter is a little bit uncertain at the moment. Um, I'm, so I'm trying to gradually build a little bit of profile on LinkedIn. Um, it's taken me a lot longer and I devote less time to it than I do Twitter. But um, either of those is a, a useful place to start and just sort of see some of the things that we're thinking about. Um, also, definitely keep an eye out for um, everyone else in the group and, and the work that they're doing and, and what they're talking about on social media as well. So Trish Jackman at University of Lincoln and, and Rebecca Hawkins at University of Lincoln are doing, both doing um, really, really good work in this space. Um, Ollie Williamson, like I said, is between University of Lincoln and Southern Cross University. Um, <clears throat> Scott Goddard just finished his PhD at Southern Cross University um, and is doing some really interesting stuff. And Matt Schweikel and Stu Vella at University of Wollongong are all sort of... Um, working in the space and thinking um, pretty actively. So, um, and we've obviously got other collaborators as well and, and the list will go on and I'm, I, I won't be able to do it justice to everyone involved, but um, yeah, sort of just keeping an eye out for what the group's up to. Um, that, you know, all of us are um, really interested in the space, really curious about it, um, really happy to talk about it, um, really keen to share ideas and um, yeah, you know, have, have some pretty cool things in the pipeline for the next year or two. Amazing. Well, we'll include the um, information in the show notes so people can follow that. But um, in the meantime, Perfect. Christian, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. Really appreciate you having me on. Brilliant. Brilliant. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Now, we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week. Thank you.